0: Welcome to the Hardwood Hustle Podcast, where we know and believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before.
1: In the finale episode of our coverage of the Last Dance documentary, we continue turning entertainment into education with PGC Basketball's Sam Allen. This episode dives into the 1998 championship victory, as well as some of the comments made by former Bulls since the documentary has aired. Adam, TJ, and Sam also share some of their biggest takeaways from the entire 10-episode documentary. Coaches, make sure to share this episode with your players. It could be a great way to connect with your team while discussing the best teachable moments from The Last Dance. Now, let's jump in. So, gentlemen, we are back
2: at it today as we continue our final episode on Breaking Down the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, I encourage you to go back and check them out. We've been going week by week trying to turn entertainment into education, and we continue here with episodes 9 and 10, and as always, joined by Sam Allen, who's going to help guide us through this last series of episodes. Just got to say, Sam, I think the total documentary was phenomenal. I absolutely loved it. I found moments where I just was captivated, almost like forgetting to breathe because I was so entrenched into the content that the documentary was was providing. So I'm excited to kind of break down these last two episodes and we put a bow on this entire series together. So Sam, what are you thinking?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on, I just loved it myself, you know, having grown up watching that era. Um, and seeing what I think the greatest player of all time, greatest competitor. So just a lot of fun. Excited to talk about episode 9 and 10. Let's start out, guys, with the Indiana Pacers, Reggie Miller. And, you know, the 98 season, they almost lost. I mean, 98 Eastern Conference Finals, that was a really good Pacers team that almost beat them. They even backtracked to when Reggie and Michael got into a fight. And I've heard Reggie Miller talk. I mean, he's, it still eats him up losing those series. And Michael and the Bulls did not allow several big-time players throughout that era to win a championship from Carl Malone to Patrick Ewing to Reggie Miller to Charles Barkley, Dominique Wilkins. So, TJ and Adam, let's start there with the, you know, the 98 Pacers-Bulls series and then going to game seven and almost not being able to 3 And the fight with Reggie, what were y'all's thoughts on that whole um, segment of the show? You know, I think that
0: we got to remember that it always takes like a great opponent to make a champion. Right. And so there's like there's both sides of this thing. Like, how would Charles Barkley and Reggie Miller and Patrick Ewing or any of these guys be remembered? You know, take Jordan out of the equation. And so that's why I've always struggled with, you know, does it take a ring or not a ring or greatest of all time? And what if you just happen to be, I mean, we'd easily probably be saying that Rafael Nadal or Djokovic is like maybe one of the greatest players ever. Federer's not right ahead of him. And then the fact that they all three played together. Otherwise, take Federer out of the equation, like Nadal and Djokovic are like, they're they're battling for the greatest of, of all time. Because Federer is there, you think about him in a second breath, or maybe just a little bit distance behind. And so, you know, for those guys' legacy, I think it's it's really interesting. You know what what that means, and and uh, but I think it was it was great to see the competitiveness. Like when you think about Carl Malone and John Stockton, great competitors, right? And you think about Reggie Miller, like he had some freak games, man, where he just refused to lose. And he just knocked down big shots, just a competitor. And so, you know, he had a, a worthy adversary in many of those series. And, and probably those players don't get as much recognition as they deserve.
2: I'll be honest. When I was – I remember those series vividly, as I'm sure you all do as well. I actually wanted the Pacers to knock them off. Like, I I, I liked those Pacers teams. And they kind of, you know, recapped them very well. They were big. They could shoot. They had good leaders. They had Mullen and Rick Smith. And – I found myself pulling for them, but I do I do think that showed and demonstrated the greatness of the Bulls and Jordan because they were a good team. You could argue that the Pacers team was a better team. They just didn't have Michael Jordan and Scottie Pittman, but Michael Jordan specifically. So I think that just kind of links to the greatness of Jordan that he did come across teams that were actually better than their team. And, and I think the Pacers were one of them. So that, that was fun. I, I love the, the dynamic of Bird being involved in it as well. That that just kind of brings things full circle, right? Bird is back in the equation, but this time coaching. And that interaction afterwards was kind of funny where he's, hey, now you'll have more time to work on your golf game. Those little jabs, which just became so uh, quintessential Michael Jordan-esque all throughout the documentary. But I did find myself wanting to pull for the Pacers, and I forgot a lot of those moments. So those was fun to look back and see some of the, the moments and relive those because they were so awesome at the time, uh, NBA on NBC, you know, all that stuff. It, it was special to see.
3: Yeah, no doubt. And, and so obviously in 97 and 98, the Bulls beat the Jazz in the finals. And fellas, I mean, this was a big revelation. I, I, I hadn't heard this. I don't, I don't know if you had, I don't know if anybody had. We called the 97 flu game, the flu game. Well, it wasn't a flu game. It sounds like it was a food poisoning game. And Tim Grover's talking about there was five guys. I used to deliver pizzas in high school. It only takes one person to deliver pizza. Five guys deliver a pizza. He's the only one eats it. He gets sick. It builds the mystique around Jordan even more. That here he is being carried off. You see him so exhausted in the timeouts. I mean, that was hilarious to me. That was a big revelation that, we need to stop calling it the flu game. Call it the food poison game. What was you alls thoughts on that whole situation? You know,
0: my first reaction—I was surprised he ordered pizza. Okay. You know, when I think about Jordan, like how competitive he is, and that he was eating a pizza during that time—that I, I, was my first reaction because I think he took everything so serious as a part of the game. And then Trisha might not have been at that at that place before, but I, I just think it was one of those things. And when people get to watch it, like people that don't remember, like talking to it, my players about it that um, he just refused. It's like he never lost because even when they finished the end of their career and it was all done, you know, he kind of just went on to the wizards and they kind of parted ways, but nobody really ever knocked off those bulls. And that was just one of those moments where he refused to lose. And it happened so many times over the documentary that you almost forget. Like I thought Jordan was the greatest player, but then watching this just reaffirmed because there were so many times he could have been down and out so many times they could have lost and just constant refusal to get beat
2: even despite something like food poisoning why was he the only one that ate the pizza that that's my question you got a pizza in a hotel room and it's late at night and none of those other guys eat the pizza <laughs> would he not would he not let them i mean i mean what is the deal there
1: he
3: ate so, it he one... ate it all before they could get to it he was that competitive
1: <laughs>
2: i mean first of all that's actually a very scary thing uh when you think about it right going into a, an opposing city and having restaurants or someone potentially harming the food being delivered i, I think we kind of glossed over it. we kind of look at it in a very nostalgia sake food poisoning game flu game and such but i i, I was reminded there that's kind of dangerous that that's something we don't want to talk about right corrupting people's food and poisoning people's food in light of that but to TJ's point, that determination, that drive, that will to win. I mean, I think there's, I don't know if I've ever seen an athlete with a greater will to win. And in that sequence, actually, that may be the following year, because there was two years there, and we probably will talk about it. And I don't want to jump the gun, Sam, but the sequence that he does at the end of the final game in that one series, which we'll get to, but It just goes to the will to win. I don't think we've ever seen an athlete ever will their team consistently. And I think that's the big part. We've seen moments where athletes have willed their team to win in series, in games. But to do it every series and every season, year after year, regardless of the opponent, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your current health status, you could be sick or not, you could be partially injured or not, it's the most we've ever seen, and I think that is what separates in many ways Jordan from anyone else, is that will to win has never been greater than any athlete that I've ever seen. I'd maybe put a Tom Brady up there, you know, legendary aspect. Um, I'm biased to Tom Brady, guys. You all know that. But it, it's special. It's really, really special.
3: Yeah, Adam, that that was it for me, too. That was one big thing that popped off the screen for me during this final two episodes was... Like, when he was sitting on the bench, not just during the food poison game, not just – but all those times during the timeout and the, the exhaustion you see. And him – like, you said it really well. He just willed his team to win. Like, he just found a way to make it – ha- it made me think back to, you know, this is on a much smaller scale, but like when you're playing pickup basketball and you're, you're an hour into playing and you're into game seven or eight and you, like, are so tired. And then you find out like what you're made of, or playing college ball, and you're coming out of a what three minutes to go in the game, and you're down by three, and your body and your mind are exhausted, and you have to find a way to dig a little bit deeper, and that is what I hope play like I, it's you know I hope players really draw that from this is how you got to dig in and find a way to make it happen.
2: And I tell you one thing that's interesting: Jordan didn't win every game. We know that. Yeah. There were games he lost. But the difference is when you looked at Jordan, you always thought he was going to win. So even in moments when he didn't, you thought he was going to make it happen. And I think that differs from a lot of the players today. Yes, you recognize their greatness. Yes, you know their incredible skills and physically they're freaks. But you don't look at them with the same confidence that you would look at a Michael Jordan and say, they're going to figure it out. They're going to make a way, oh, man, you just poke the bear, get out of the way, watch out, he's going to make it happen. You don't think about it and you don't look at him the same way. And even in moments when they lost and they'd ask him, you know, questions in the press conference and he would just kind of shrug it off a little bit. He had some classic lines in those moments. You even looked at him in there and was like, okay, they're still going to win. I mean, he's still going to win. And you don't think about that in the same capacity with today's athletes. That's the big separator for me in many ways with Jordan.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think it was really interesting to watch when you when you think about um, those different types of players. Like when you think about a Tom Brady, it's going to be interesting to see him come back to the Bucks because it's, it has an opportunity. I mean, Jordan didn't do a ton with the Wizards, even though he was scoring 40 at 38. You know, it's still – and that was a pretty amazing competition. It's going to be fun to, to watch what Tom Brady – Um, does with this but I I think it's um, also just really interesting one of the things that I remember I don't know it was so outlined in this series but I always remember Jordan kind of coming out making a decision where I don't think a lot of players can make a decision like LeBron makes a decision do I want to wait for the game to come to me or do I want to go attack the game and I remember vividly he would go into certain games and you'd watch the first five minutes and you'd say he's just he's here to kill and, and to be honest with you, it wasn't always the right solution. There were sometimes times when he had the mentality of I'm here to kill and they weren't very balanced and he needed more help, specifically early in his career. I think he learned that lesson really quickly. I've got to make others around me better. And I've always said that guys like Jordan, guys like Kobe, guys like LeBron, they all went through the same maturation. Until they learned how to make everybody around them better, the championships didn't come. The scoring titles were always there. The scoring titles were there. Whether, whether they had uh, championships or not, but the championships didn't come until so they incorporated everybody else. But the unique thing about Michael Jordan is it was almost like he made a decision every night. It was like, are my guys ready or are they not? If they're not, I'm going to go ahead and you know, take off and score the first 20. And if they are, I'm just going to facilitate and then I'm going to take over at the end of the game. I've never seen an athlete dictate how a game went like Michael Jordan dictated how a game went.
3: DJ, you're right on. I think that's an act. We haven't even talked about that in, in the first four uh, Hardwood Hustle recordings, but that's an underrated leadership component of Michael. He knew how to, when to force the issue, when to delegate. And that's a, like, not many people can do that. First off, are so good. Like, you got to be, I mean, we talked about this some, like, you get to be a great leader, you know, or you don't have to be a great player, but sure does help. And he he had the ability to turn it turn on the scoring button or the playmaker button or the defense button. And he, that's just an underrated skill that most people miss here.
0: Yeah, I often wonder, I don't know what you guys think, but I often wonder if LeBron had that quality if he'd have more championships. I don't know that he navigates that as well. And it's not, I'm not knocking LeBron. I just don't know if he navigates that as well. I don't know if he comes out and says, you know what, what they need to see is a show of force right now and I'm going to take over at the beginning of this game, or I'm going to back. I think sometimes he figures it out and it takes him longer over the course of a game or a series to figure out where Jordan just adjusted within minutes of yeah, here I'm coming, I'm dominating. I'm doing too much. Let me back off or I'm not doing enough. Give me the ball. You know, he just, he just dictated like nobody I've ever seen in the game of basketball.
2: I think a lot of that plays into the personality though, TJ, right? Because I think it's Jordan's personality in order to do that, to kind of, dictate the direction of things within a game. You've got to have this personality that's almost that bullish personality. I'm going to take over, right? I'm going to step in here and do this. I'm going to step in here and do that. And I'm going to push people to the side and things like that. You have to have that, that, that dog mentality that we keep talking about in different episodes. And, and I think that is challenging for LeBron. I don't think that's in his nature per se, And I think that maybe prohibited him at times from doing that because there are moments where he does do that, right? Like I think about that Detroit game series uh, years ago with LeBron where he scored like the final 24 points. I think about a a game in the garden, I forget, game six of one series where he went in and he just had that look in his eyes. Everyone said it was Jordan-esque, right? But the thing that's interesting, it was Jordan-esque, but it was only shown – once every 10 games, right? Whereas Jordan was doing it time and time again. What do you think, TJ?
0: Well, let me ask you this. I, and this I'm not, not meaning this to be an old question, like we're getting old or times are changed. I don't like blaming things on the past or times have changed this way or that way. But do you think it's harder for people to be that these days, like with the environment? I mean, when you think about somebody like LeBron James, there's definitely in watching and reflecting on the series – Jordan definitely had distractions, but I feel like he had less distractions than somebody in this generation would have, you know, like, I mean, when you think about he was just going in there grinding, working and his shoe deal was kind of a sideshow or whatever, but like a lot of these guys are coming into the league and that's the biggest decision they can make. And they're getting rich off shoe deals before they even have to score a bucket, you know? And so I wonder if the environment doesn't change a little bit where, you know, I think LeBron's more engaged in things outside, whether it's, um, whether it's endorsements with beats or whatever it is he's just got a lot going on and jordan had a lot going on but it wasn't till late in his career and really you know probably made more money after his career on the jordan brand it, but i i wonder sometimes if it's not harder for players in this generation to be a little bit more dogged in their approach to be a little bit more you know competitive because there's a lot of things pulling and tugging at them i don't know if that's true or not but I want to get your thoughts on that guys
2: yeah, man, I mean, I think we, we alluded to this a little bit in a previous episode. We want the dog, but then we critique the dog, right? And, and we we don't like the behaviors of the dog, yet we want the dog, right? Because if LeBron started being that bullish teammate, kind of cutthroat, relentless, we would then accuse him for not being a good teammate. And we'd say nobody wants to play with him. And and he's not a good leader. And he'd get a lot of crap for that. And he'd take a lot of heat from, for that. And I think because of that pressure – it, it kind of reduces them, and they've kind of become more. And, and then not only the, the culture of everything. We're talking about, you know, jersey exchange at the end of games, right? Fist, daps all throughout the game. These are teammates, and they're, they're co-stars in movies together, and they're friends. And I think that has changed it significantly as well, that it's almost made that unacceptable to act that way. Is it because
0: it's exposed more though, Sam, what do you think? Like when you look at like, um, you know, we knew Jordan was a dog and a competitor, but we, we really until this series didn't see like the collateral damage, right? Like, I mean, I didn't know that there was collateral damage with teammates and things like that, because I didn't, I don't ever recall Jordan being out in the public calling people out or being in feuds with other people. You know what I mean? Like, especially teammates, like, I think everything kind of stayed behind locker room doors. And is it more trouble that things are just more exposed? I mean, I feel like when something happens behind locker room doors, we're going to know in about 12 hours, somebody's texting one of the reporters or somebody's going on. So is it harder for Jordan? two hours? What's that? In two, yeah. In two, two hours. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, if we had the same means that we had then that we have now, like the reporters were the same, or I don't even know what, what that correlation is, but would, would it have been different? Because, we're ne- we're just now seeing these things that Jordan did, but they they weren't public when he was an actual player.
3: Yeah, my my take on it is, I don't know. I think there are more distractions, TJ, in terms of social media. There's more coverage. You know, back then it was like Sports Center covered it, and that was it, right? And and now there's Fox Sports and ESPN. All, there's there's just more media outlets and then social media. I think, I, I think today's players change teams more. I think that's what maybe an older school or, or, you know, even us that watch this era, you know, you didn't see a player leave a team like they had to figure it out and, and overcome that obstacle. I mean, Rodman, you know, did leave after a while with the Pistons and then he ends up with the, the Bulls, but I think they're, and, and so Jordan, back to your first statement, TJ, I don't know that LeBron has more distract. I mean, Jordan was shooting movies. Jordan was the first to really go global. I mean, he was a global icon, unlike we'd ever seen. And I don't probably even still this day rivals or is the top of the game in that. So I don't know. I think there is there's more distractions, but at the same time, Jordan could. I mean, this is what he talked about. He could zero out in any distractions better than anybody and lock into what was going on in that moment. I think there's also the
2: situation.
3: And what do you guys think
2: about this? I think there's a lot of pressure to create an attractive environment, an attractive team. And it's almost like you're constantly auditioning to bring in free agents to make this a destination that you want to be a part of. And I think a lot of that then influences the behavior that you don't want to Demonstrate that this is a dysfunctional team or a dysfunctional program because that doesn't do anyone any good within the program. So when I think about things like The way they used to call out GM Jerry Krause and like kind of talk about not liking that. I think nowadays, even if players don't like their GMs, they're not necessarily going to say that because they're trying to put on this facade that hey, this is a great place to play. Come play here. I don't know if that plays a huge part but i I wonder if that has something to do with it as well because of the exposure everything is so exposed so there's almost like a front that's put on to just try to make it seem more attractive am i off base there or what do you think
0: yeah i mean i yeah it's an interesting question i i don't know how much times have changed these things and I, i think you're probably right there's a there's just a lot more to think there's a lot more in the equation as far as you know the social media and the gms and how you portray your city I think I I don't think Jordan thought about all of those things. I thought more of his attention was on basketball and probably easier for it to be on basketball.
3: Hey, well in the spirit of the documentary how they do a great job of of taking you to 98 bouncing back to 88. Uh I'm going to we're going to we're going to finish it later here with the 98 Bulls Jazz series, but let's go back to some interesting moments in the doc. Specifically, you know, they zeroed in on Jordan's bodyguard. They're trying to show a human element of Jordan that he really cared about people. Um, and then they get into Steve Kerr and the, they draw the the uh, correlation between Kerr losing his father, Jordan losing his father. I think Steve Kerr, you know, really comes, you know, out in a really positive way in this. I mean, you think about it, he won five championships as a player he was under Popovich and Phil Jackson. He sees how they manage personalities. He And then he bees himself to, to help the Warriors. He has three championships as a Warriors coach. But did y'all have any thoughts on some of the moments with Steve Kerr talking about his own father? Um, and then maybe how that's translated into his present-day coaching?
2: I found it interesting when they asked him if he's ever talked with Jordan about his father and the parallels there. I, I don't know if it should have been discussed between them over the years of playing together. I just thought it was interesting that they never talked about it. Despite the fact that their dads died in somewhat similar fashion. Um, so I, I found that to be interesting. I didn't know all about Steve Kerr's family. I didn't know about his dad and, and what had happened. So that was news to me. But I did enjoy seeing and, and kind of hearing that and seeing that side of Steve. And, you and, know, and obviously I love the fact that he, he came into the program, TJ, almost mirroring and modeling John Paxton, right? I found that to really be interesting. Like most people wouldn't look at John Paxton as like the person they'd want to model their game after, right? They wouldn't, you know, most people wouldn't want to come in and say, Man, I looked up to that guy and I wanted to model and emulate that guy and his game. And I also love that John helped Steve. So he served as that mentor. He didn't hold back that information and knowledge, which I think a lot of players do. Unfortunately, they don't want to share it. They to keep it to themselves. So I like that John Paxson helped Steve Kerr navigate it, know what is needed and how to effectively play alongside Michael and how much Steve appreciated that. So I enjoyed seeing that interaction and it just reminded me, how much the importance of veteran players really sharing with their younger teammates the nuances, the tricks, the things that they've learned along the way. And Now we say knowledge learned is not meant to be kept, but rather shared. And John Paxson kind of demonstrated that with Steve Kerr.
0: Yeah. You know, I think for coaches, there's a lot of valuable lessons in here. And one that kind of is kind of intertwined in here to me that I saw play out many times is how important, like the little small things are the 1%. like, you know, the bulls continue to plug and play a lot of different people, but they saw the value of John Paxson and Steve Kerr on the wing to stretch the floor. You know what I mean? Like they, they valued all these different players in the role of what they did because one thing that I think people don't they, they underestimate, I've been to a lot of NBA games, sat on, sat on in different places on the, the floor, watch different teams play. I have never seen a better coach or a better coach team in the NBA than Jerry Sloan. I mean, I think he's the all-time greatest coach I've ever seen coach a team. So when the Bulls end up beating the Jazz, and I know we'll talk about that in a minute, but I think that they beat the, one of the best coach teams with really good players on it. In their prime. So I think that that championship is almost underestimated because of how good that team is. Like when you think about a Steve Kerr team and how they share the ball or a um, or a a Popovich team and how well they share the ball. There's hard to beat that team. Well, the Jazz was that then. That's who they were. They were that hard to beat team because their system was so good. And so when I look at a guy like Steve Kerr and even when the plug and play like Luke Longley and. Will Perdue and Bill Cartwright, like they always had this guy to protect the pain. And then Jordan played his role. And be, and so I think that a lot of times we can get enamored with stacking talent or putting all those things in different places, but it, really the chemistry of a team, having people fill their role, having people do their job to the utmost. And like the example you gave Adam of, of the next guy being willing to make the next guy star in his role when his time is over, like those are underestimated things of really special teams.
1: This is Tucker Herzberg, producer of this podcast, bringing you this week's Team Snap Halftime Talk. As a sports performance coach, I take great pride in learning the best methods to communicate with the athletes I train. I have always heard the best coaches say to communicate no more than three things at once. This has worked very well for me, and it is my absolute upper limit. Especially when working with a large group of athletes, I often bring this down to one to two pieces of communication at most. Even if there's more I want to say, I don't. I let the athletes perform several reps and then slowly add one to two more pieces of information at a time. This week, I encourage all coaches to use one to two and no more than three pieces of communication at a time when instructing your athletes. Join 15 million players, parents, and coaches who all use the world's best team communication app at teamsnap.com backslash hustle. And before we jump back in, let's take a look at the shootaway halftime stat sheet. I recently saw a stat that might be the most impressive I've ever seen. After the Michael Jordan Bulls lost the first three games of the 1990-1991 season, they never lost three games in a row again. Since the start of that season, until 1998, Michael Jordan's team played 500 games and never lost three games in a row. In fact, they only lost back-to-back games 16 times during that stretch. That kind of consistency is only developed with an insane work ethic, and there's no better way to develop consistency in your game than with the gun by ShootAway. Find out why this is the best shooting machine in the world at ShootAway.com. Now, back to our coverage of the finale episode of The Last Dance Documentary.
3: You're hitting on a great point, TJ, which is it's not about the five best players, but having complementary pieces. You know, Pippen was a great um, Robin to the Batman. And they all had – you know, then you have Tony Kukoc coming off the bench, a 6'10", you know, versatile player that can score. And and when Jordan goes to the bench, he he brings a playmaking. You got Kerr and Paxson stretching the floor. You got a dirty worker and Horace Grant for the first three championship, Rodman for the second three. And do you think, TJ, that coaches miss on that in, let's say, college coaching a lot of times where you just – Maybe you get enamored with just going getting the best talent, but it's really not about the best talent. It's about the complimentary talent. Is that a thing that you think a lot about in, in recruiting and building your team, or do you think coaches miss on it? Can you talk about that? I think it's a very underestimated thing, and I think it's a very hard thing to put your
0: thumb on, and here's why. Like, it was Steve Kerr one of the best coaches ever? I don't know, you know, if he's one of the best coaches ever. I know that he's really good at doing what he does. I mean, they're the worst team in the NBA right now, right? Like, they're the – so there's other things. But put a bunch of talented players together, I don't know if there's anybody better at managing really talented players, right? So we can – same thing, we can knock Phil. Like, Phil always had a – I don't know how good of an X and O coach he was and how great he was at timeouts and all those things. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, Phil didn't call timeouts when they were in trouble. They just let them play through it. Can you get away with that with every team? Probably not. Right. And, and so when you look at all of the different dynamics, I think that we all have to be authentic to ourselves as a coach, but we have to, in our authenticity, find the best way to put people in spots where they can be successful. I mean, that's what coaching is. Like if our offense, doesn't feed our team getting the best shots they possibly can that's a problem we can't just run the offense we've always run we've got to do something different you know and I think that common denominator amongst really good coaches and people in these threads is they really knew how to get people in the right seats in the bus and I mean isn't that true of a great business or anything else and you know you can have all the right people on the bus but in all of the wrong seats and you're screwed right and and I so and one of the reasons I think it's uh something we don't talk about a lot in like coaching is because there is no one formula. You know, the formula is always different. So nobody can corner the market on it. Nobody can tell you that Brad Stevens way or Steve Kerr's way, you just can't corner the market because your team's different than my team. And you know, if you're coaching eighth grade or high school, everybody's got a different team and what that team needs is different. And that's where I always talk about the art and the science of coaching You know, you can have all the science right and have none of the art right, and you're in a lot of trouble. And this is the art of coaching, putting people in the right seats in the bus.
2: You know, it it was interesting. Danny Ainge talked about that, TJ, in the 2018-2019 Boston Celtics team when they talked about what went wrong. This was not this year, but the year prior. He said, we had too much talent. I, I needed to get rid of some of our talent. And he didn't learn that until after he thought the talent was what was going to be needed. But then, you know, as they approach this year, they get rid of Al Horford. They get rid of Kyrie Irving. They, they kind of move some of the talent out of the building. And all of a sudden, they then increase their win-loss record by removing extra All-Stars out. And, and it was, it's interesting. And to your point, even those with some of their best experience still are figuring it out. Right. I mean, Danny Ains you can't, doesn't get much more experience than that. He's seen it all around the basketball space. And even he became enamored with collecting talent, collecting talent. I just need talent. Let me get these all-stars in. And then in the midst, learning the hard way of a dysfunctional season saying, wow, I need to go back to finding the pieces before we jump back into Sam." Why do you think we become so enamored? Like, why do we keep going in this this cycle? We're on this hamster wheel. I feel like where we we chase the talent, and then we realize, oh, it's not all about talent. And then we go back, and then we maybe pull back from talent. I need more talent. Oh, it's not all about talent. It's, I feel like we're in a hamster wheel. TJ.
3: Yeah, Adam, I got a question for you, building off this these points y'all are making, which is, you know, Phil Jackson won eleven championships. He he gets a lot of credit for that. But he also, for a guy that's won 11 championships, he gets a lot of heat or like, oh, well, he had the best player of all time in Jordan. Then he goes to the Lakers and he had the most dominant in Shaq and maybe the second best player in Kobe. And no doubt, like every team that wins championships, you have really good players or great players. Like, but there's so many times coming off of what TJ just mentioned where he did, like not calling a timeout, letting players figure out. You know, you listen to Steve Kerr talk about Phil Jackson. He has a great reverence for him and respect for, you know, even going in the locker room where they, they burn, they, they talk and they they burn the thing and they throw it in the trash and like how that was a special moment. And he creates those moments, I think, with his team. Or Rodman Rodman says, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do me. And Phil realized that he let me do me. We talked about that one of the past episodes. I mean, what do you think, Adam, about that leadership style? And also, I want to say one more point before we go to you, Adam. TJ, I think he hired his weaknesses. He had Tex Winter for his offense, a guy named Jim Clemens for his defense. And his assistants didn't always go on and have great success um, when they were head coaches. It's sometimes hard to replicate that, or a Coach K assistant who's phenomenal at leadership. Um, so, Adam, what are your thoughts on Phil Jackson's, you know, leadership and management of personalities? You know, I got the
2: impression that Phil was – he had an incredible ability to meet the player where he is. And I know Dennis Rodman alluded to that. You know, Phil kind of let me be me. And I think that really, to TJ's thing about the art of coaching, I think that's one of the biggest arts is how do you reach players where they are? How do you allow them to be who they are? Uh, But still within the confines of the team, I think – Phil was a master, in my opinion, of letting the players kind of operate freely, yet in a system. Obviously, they had the system of the triangle, but yet you you felt like he he gave them the ability to be themselves, to express themselves, to uh, behave certain ways and act certain ways. I, I don't get the impression ever that Phil Jackson was this micromanaging, overbearing, on top of every little detail, but a lot more just you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guide you, but but you're going to still navigate it completely. So I thought he was incredible in that regard. And I think that's how you have to be with the bigger stars uh, on a team. I think you've got to learn that art because the stars won't handle the opposite.
0: You know, I, 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 I'm, I hate to go back to this conversation. We did an NBA college one where I, I hammered Tyler and Adam, you know, one time. And we were talking about the difference between college and NBA. But the hey, you probably the, lost that argument, but it's all good. Here's the thing: I, I, I and I I enjoy watching. Like I can separate the two. I enjoy watching some of the skill work of the game of the NBA of basketball. Okay, but I think we're I think we're almost mistaken when we start talking about some of the leadership things in like the NBA and like all the you know there's to some people like I mean I think Phil Jackson was a really good manager. I think he managed people well. I think he met them where he needed, where they needed to be. Now, when you look at what is the role of high school basketball, what is the role of college basketball? I think you know everybody on this call and probably a lot of our listeners, we desire it to be double gold. Like we desire for the leadership to be transformational. We desire for leadership to change lives. We desire for people to accomplish more than they ever possibly could have accomplished because they understand the value of a group. Like, that is what it is. And that's why I become so unenamored with the NBA. I look at it like a business, and I don't know if, like, I mean, I don't, like, Nick Saban doesn't work in the in the NFL, right? You can give a long list of people that don't work at these different places because it's a whole different ballgame. Like, it's not apples to apples. And when you look at um, the management of people and players, like what happened with the Bulls, Phil Jackson managed them. I don't know that there was a ton of inspiration going on there or a ton of whatever. I'm sure he had did that as well, but I just think it's different. I just think it's a business. I just think it's where people are going uh, to, to, you know, it's that, it's that final level. Like when you meet most NBA players, like how many NBA players have you met in your life? And be honest about it. Like the NBA players I've met in my life, like I'm not thinking all the time and there's some really good dudes in the league. Don't get me wrong. But the majority of them, like, I'm not seeing this great team player that I love being around That's this great role model. Like, I think they're just kind of doing them. Like I think most
2: people are doing Rodman. TJ, I, I agree with your point. I do want to ask something in light of what you said. I, I, I certainly agree that there's a lot more managing than inspiration. In fact, this kind of alludes to a recent episode that we did with Theo Pinson of the Brooklyn Nets. If you recall, TJ where he talked about some of his stuff that he was doing, which is more leadership oriented, his energy, his enthusiasm, his spirit on the bench and how he was even shocked that so many people looked at it as this incredible thing where he kind of was like, what's the big deal? (laughs) Like, this is what I do, but it isn't done a lot. So it stood out so much and, and elevated it. I do want to ask though, if Phil was strictly just the manager, and wasn't this special leader, why did Michael Jordan only want to play for him? Like, like, why was Michael so fixated on only playing for Phil and saying, I'm not playing for anybody else. If Phil goes, I'm done. He even said, I didn't want to retire. I didn't want to retire, but I wouldn't play for anyone else. Why? Is it just because he was a good manager or was there more to it? He basically said the same thing about Doug Collins.
0: So he basically said the same thing about every Bulls coach he ever had. He, I mean, he, I think – but, but he, he meant it with Phil because he
2: retired at his peak, which he
0: said still frustrates him to this day. And, and then it became about money and ego. Like, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it was some like, uh, you know, I'm going down with the captain of the ship. I think it was just a pissing match, to be honest with you. All
3: right, we're going we're gonna to come back to that, fellas, in a moment. <laughs> I love the passion here. Um, we got to simmer down. Uh, don't simmer down. Actually, so let's let's fast forward to '98, and we're in the Bulls Jazz game six in Utah, and Pippen's hurt, and then Jordan has maybe the best last forty seconds of a game to end a career. Had he not come back with the Wizards, let's pretend he didn't do that. And man, he hits the he hits the runner in the lane. Then he gets a steal from Carl, and he hits the most iconic basketball shot at, that I've ever seen, pushing off Byron Russell to finish it. Um, and by the way, that's another theme that plays out, the slights. He builds up the slights, whether they're manufactured. Um, but Byron Russell did talk trash during the baseball time, and he came back and got him. So let's, let's, what's y'all's perspective, um, TJ, on, on that fi- the final moments of 98? Well, I think
0: it's a, a defining memorable moment. Like when you look at like the three or four pillars of Michael Jordan, like we'll never forget that. Right. Like, I mean, it was just one of those things that was um, the the cap on everything. And so I, that in itself was not surprising though, because I think we were so used to Jordan doing that. Like we're so used to Jordan taking over games and we're so used to him getting the ball in, the, in those moments. And, You know, I I think that when we watched him do what he did in that final series, I was watching it thinking, like, there's probably no other way this can go. I mean, you watched him long enough in all the other series. Like, you just expected that to happen. And I can't say that with very many athletes that, you know, you just got to that moment. I mean, like Adam alluded to one earlier, like Tom Brady, right? Like, he gets in that moment. Like, I I still think Tom Brady, like, a big part of him is the system, but he's a really good quarterback. But put him in that crunch moment, you expect him to deliver expect him to come through. And there's very few athletes, you know, like when I look over LeBron's career, like sometimes he has, sometimes he hasn't and that's not a knock on him because that's 99% of the world. You know, sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't with Jordan. I don't know if the legend just became bigger, but you just almost expected like what
2: else could happen? Like he's not going to lose this game. I love the glimpses into the crowd of emotion during those moments, right? The Utah fans kind of disappointed the couple of bulls fans in those moments. is just- exasperated and joyful you know it there was no other way it was going to end than in that moment and the way it ended I'm so glad that Costas chimed in on the push right the push off and Sam you alluded to it this wasn't a push off Jordan even mentioned this was this was a guiding of someone with their hand on the back type thing I mean his momentum was going he was falling over whether Jordan's hand was there or not I'm glad they could kind of bring that. And here's what's funny about all of this. When you know Michael Jordan helped produce this and he had his hands on everything, I love looking back and laughing on, he made sure to put in focus certain things he wanted clarity to kind of quiet people down. And I think that's one of those areas, I think he's heard enough over the years that he pushed off Byron Russell, that he wanted to make a moment in the documentary to clarify that wasn't a foul, that wasn't a push-off. So I thought that was interesting as well.
3: Well, Adam, it it was a different era because the documentary did a good job of showing Reggie Miller's push-off in the same year. He pushes – I mean, you know, you just – you don't – you know, and Reggie talked about That's how great of a player he said. "Um, The referees aren't going to make – they're not going to call that foul. Uh, And he pushed off and then – yeah, and it wasn't – Byron Russell's energy and, and momentum was going the other way, so it wasn't a foul, and you're not gonna you're not gonna call a foul on this. Yeah, I mean,
0: well, again, we're, this is the NBA, right? Like, if Stone Cold Steve Austin has got his shoulder on the mat for a two and a half count, you think they're actually gonna call three, right? They're not calling that foul on Jordan in that moment. This is this is the NBA. <laughs> Did you think it was a foul? <laughs> No, I I no I didn't I didn't think it was a foul. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was called on somebody else in that moment, to be honest with you. Like it wouldn't have shocked me if somebody called it. I think it was kind of in the flow of the game type thing
2: well in today's nba byron russell would have thrown his hands up and flopped even worse and then they would have called the foul right so like, no, yeah. everything would have changed no no to, let's to, let's be honest about what
0: would have happened like we would have been at the monitor for four and a half minutes and then they would have been back i, I that's part of the game that i don't, <laughs> I, I do i do guess. i hey look the game just happened sometimes you got a bad call sometimes you didn't get a call i I do think that all the going back to the monitor and all that kind of stuff has slowed that thing down. And then there's point zero 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 one left on the clock. Like, bam, he just hit a shot game. Let's go to the locker room. I, I miss that that end, that just decisiveness.
3: Yeah, so they win the championship. Now, I don't know why Leonardo DiCaprio was in the locker room. That was a random, <laughs> random sighting. But then they're on the bus, and Carl Malone – you know, which is a, such a classy thing to do. I love the uh, tucked-in T-shirt to the jeans. He comes on the bus and, you know, get pays respect to, you know, Jordan and Pippen from the Dream Team. And, um, you know, it looked like, Jordan, there wasn't much love back. It went, I, it's hard to, hard to know because it's a documentary and you don't see the whole footage. Did y'all have any thoughts on Malone coming on the bus and kind of giving respect to MJ and the Bulls?
0: Yeah, I I thought it was a classy move. I but you know, it was I, I wanted Jordan to win, but there was also a big part of me that rooted for the Jazz because I think they were the classiest organization. I think from head to toe from gritty little uh, you know, John Stockton, you know, coming down to to Karl Malone being the mailman hard worker guy to Jerry to Sloan being a great coach. you know, just all the way through. I thought the the Jazz were a uh Crim to La rim as far as the way they played the game and the way they operated. And so uh, I wasn't surprised by the classiness of that. And I thought it was just another testament to, to how well the Jazz, I mean, I think people missed how well the Jazz played the game, how well they represented the game of basketball.
2: And we also forgot how loud that arena was in Utah. You know, that they talked about that and brought a lot of attention. Even his family couldn't travel and such. Sam, a quick little note about Leonardo DiCaprio. Titanic was released at the end of 97, December 19th, 1997, 97, 98. There's no greater, bigger actor in the world at that point than Leonardo DiCaprio. So I think that speaks, MJ Pi threw that in there and said, even the biggest of Hollywood was coming to see me, kind of going to that ego bit. And I did just have to Google that while we were talking, because I did not know that off the top of my head. But... Was that one and of your I thought that was movies? really cool. No, it's not, but I actually do want to watch it again because my dad told me a very uh, uh, interesting story from it that I actually want to go back and look at. But nonetheless, um, I, I love that move by Carl Malone. I thought that was really classy. And, and there was also a moment where at one point Michael said hi to, or you know, kind of communicated with Carl and John after a game when they were sitting on a table – and he kind of walked by, and I was wondering if that was just a random occurrence or if they actually made points to really kind of communicate after games like that with the competitor. Not quite sure the answer to that, but I thought that was a cool move by Carl, especially year two. I mean, he was completely defeated, completely deflated, you have to imagine, and he still did that in light of that. I thought that was really neat.
3: Yeah, so the documentary is over. We'll come back to the, the final thing we, I want to talk about is kind of the bombshell of Phil Jackson saying there's a chance to come back in 99, but we'll, we'll, we'll go there in one second before we do that. There's been a lot of post chatter, post documentary chatter from, you know, some of the bulls guys, Horace Grant, Scotty Pippen, you know, Adam, I haven't read about, I've heard Scotty Pippen. There's some frustration, how he portrayed, was portrayed. I thought he was, you know, portrayed in a very positive light. Um, but Horace Grant has been vocal and, and there's, You know, you see a little bit of bad blood um, that that might exist still from some of these guys. What what were y'all's thoughts on some of these post-documentary? And, again, I'm not as completely up to date. And so, Adam, you might be able to shed more light onto that. Yeah,
2: a couple things. So so Scotty thinks he wasn't portrayed well because he thinks there was things included in the documentary that didn't need to be included. So when he thinks specifically the incident of him not coming off the bench – uh, and Horace Grant kind of alluded to this. He basically said, he, well, from what has been gathered, secondhand reporting that, that it didn't need to be included. Michael wasn't even on the team that year. He was playing baseball. So why go through that whole doc, that whole moment of including that? Like, what's the point in the overall Jordan documentary to include that? So you heard a little bit about that, and Horace kind of even alluded to it. And then Horace, you know, he's speaking on the fact that Jordan alluding to him, being the one who shared a lot of the secrets to Sam Smith in light of Sam Smith's book, that, that it was Horace that shared because of their friendship and Horace said, absolutely not that that was a complete lie and like completely just destroying of Horace's character there. And, and then flipping it around, he said, you know, if anyone's, you know, going to get on people for telling why would you go on air and tell everybody that your 84, 85 bulls teams were doing cocaine and, with weed and all women in the room, like why would you go put all those guys on blast, knowing that everyone in America could Google the roster and simply identify who was engaging in that behavior? So it sounds like that, yeah, there's gonna have to be some cleaning up out of this, in light of it, and no surprise. You know, I figured, you know, it's interesting. You know, the Horace calls it like a semi-documentary. It is an interesting thought when the person the documentary is on is also part of the producer and owns the content and approves all the decisions. You do have to look at it a little bit differently. That is it a true documentary? Is it someone kind of telling their story? So I find that interesting. And looking back, you, you know, like I mentioned about the part of you know little moments of wanting to make Michael look certain ways. I think he's kind of purposely, intentionally doing that.
0: Yeah, you know, I got a couple of just final thoughts. Like, I, and I'd and i love to hear y'all's final thoughts on on watching this whole thing. Um, you know, a couple of things come to mind, but I, I tweeted out a quote somebody put out, a high school coach here in Georgia. You know, MJ played JV as a sophomore. Pippen started college as a manager, and Rodman didn't play high school basketball. Kerr had no offers until his senior year. Meanwhile, we have people trying to commit as eighth graders, worrying about exposure and constantly comparing young age groups. You know, like, just when you think about that, like, that was just so eye opening to me. I, I loved hearing about that, but we forget like where all these guys came from, where Rodman came from, where Pippen came from, the, you know, the struggles of Jordan Kerr. Like, I think that's something that could be missed in this whole thing is that none of these guys just got there easy, right? Like it was, it was a journey. I think that's one thing. And then the other piece of it to me was just the whole leadership thing. I mean, I think that it was just so interesting to watch it play out, you know, like I, when I look at Jordan and, and we can, we can be in awe of his competitiveness. We can be in awe of everything he gave to the game, but then there you look over to this leadership piece and, you know, that collateral damage, like how he left everything, like, man, it, it just, it, it seems like there's even now, and I've always felt this for even his, from his, his speech, you know, when it when his hall of fame speech, like there's just a hollowness a little bit. Right. And he hid some of it because he's helping produce this thing. But I still feel like there's this big hollowness to, to everything that came from that. And so I think it's a question all of us has, have to answer is, you know, how bad do we want to win versus how well do we want to play the game? Right. Like the game of life, the game of basketball, whatever it is. And we're going to balance those two things. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can do both really hard and give great effort to both things. But, you know, if you go really far one way and I've said it before, just unbalances, I think he kind of was. He got one thing from it, but I think he also lost another thing from it as well. Those were the storylines for me.
3: Yeah, those are good, TJ. There, there's so many takeaways, and I'm not going to recap them all. Uh, we've recapped them, you know, pretty extensively here in these five episodes. i say one just for right now that I'll take away or, or share is MJ's competitiveness. I mean, just truly legendary, truly phenomenal, and along with that, like most things in life, there's a contradiction. And so I love it. I, I hope players draw from the competitive greatness that he, he showed and they, they watched. And I don't, but I also don't think you have to have this crazy collateral damage along with it that, you know, you have to leave, a, leave a blood and tears behind of others with it. Um, I think it does has a price. It has, a, it has a serious price. Like, there's a commitment level and a sacrifice involved. But I don't think you have to leave that there. So that's just one final thought. And I just, I just really enjoyed talking, you know, hoops, leadership, coaching, players, basketball with you guys. So it's been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. Sam, quick question for you.
2: Did this strengthen Michael Jordan's status as the GOAT or weaken it in your mind? Same question for you, TJ, after Sam.
3: The short answer is yes, it strengthened it. I think the GOAT debate is just a bit overrated. Like, do we have to have a GOAT? Like, I didn't see Bill Russell. I didn't see Wilt Chamberlain play. Like, maybe they're the GOAT. So that that, that whole conversation, while we've had it, it's, it can be a bit overstated, overrated.
0: Yeah, on the court for me, the GOAT, the dog, the whatever, yeah, greatest player ever. He was all those things. And and I think the documentary just enforced that, reinforced that.
2: I'm With you, TJ, I think it reinforces, for me, It strengthened it and really built around that will to win. I think that's the big separator and just that incredible competitive nature. Um, he's not the biggest. He's not the fastest. He's not the strongest guy that's ever been on a basketball court. He's not the best three-point shooter to ever been on the basketball court. He doesn't have the, the best measurables out of any basketball player ever. But, man, when you just talk about this person that you need to win you a game, there's no one greater and, and he'll do whatever it takes and, and that is sometimes better than how high you can jump how fast you can run and all those different things so hey I enjoyed it as well Sam I appreciate everybody listening on behalf of the whole team here thank you for tuning in to these series of episodes it has been a lot of fun as always I am Adam he is TJ we are the Hardwood Hustle until next time we're out
4: coaches one last thing before you go I've got to ask you, if I were to ask your players, are they tired of lacking confidence in their shot? Are they tired of their range with their shot being limited? Are they tired of being inconsistent with their stroke and missing shots they should have made or feeling unmotivated to train or even training hard and just not seeing the results? If I asked them that and asked them if they were tired of it, you think they'd say yes to some of those things i'm pretty certain they would i tell you that is why the folks over at pgc basketball created the most in-depth shooting course on the planet for players who want to become deadly shooters they recently rolled out their new online course to becoming the shooter every coach wants and to transform their shot in 14 days coaches i want to encourage you to check out pgc basketball check out more of their new online shooting course And get that connected to your players today. Their shots will never be the same, and this could change the game for them and then, in turn, change the game for your team. Check out pgcbasketball.com. Coaches, appreciate you. Till
2: next time, we're out.